The following is a hoop ball presentation. Welcome to the Fantasy NBA Today podcast. Sweet, sweet, glorious Friday. We arrive at the end of another week, the end of... I've already forgotten. Did we decide this was week eight of the fantasy offseason? I got to do this count at the beginning of every episode because I can't remember where I was. Four, five, six, seven, yeah. Episode 40. That's uh, 40 little slash marks on my offseason prison wall here. Eight diagonal slashes. 32 vertical slashes. I don't know why I continue with this nonsense. Anyway, hello, hi, welcome to the show. This is Fantasy NBA Today, a hoop ball presentation. I am Dan Vespers, your host. And we've come to the end of another week. As mentioned, the finals are in full swing. We got our handicap yesterday relatively wrong, which, you know, whatever, can't get them all right. Doing pretty well in the playoffs so far on the handicapping front, but uh, not so much yesterday. Thought that the Bucks would keep that thing tighter, and they did not. Because Phoenix shot the lights out. We will talk about the finals on today's podcast. We will also talk about the Utah Jazz. Uh, wait, no. Who did I say? I think I said Denver. Doesn't really matter, I guess. Um, I don't know. Those, I was going to, let's see. We started with Portland. We looped through Minnesota. We came back down through Oklahoma. Uh, I guess if we're curling, then it should probably be Utah. And we finish with Denver, because that would sort of be the center of the uh, the curly queue. So we'll do the Jazz today. Again, not that it really matters. Their fantasy notes from this most recent season. What can we expect looking towards next year? And uh, that'll roll us on into the weekend. So as I kind of flip a coin here, by the way, you can follow me on Twitter at Dan Bespris, D-A-N-B-E-S-B-R-I-S. Continue to check out all of the amazing new stuff we've got going on over at HoopBall, the Fantasy NFL Today podcast with Anthony Germain, the All-Rookie podcast, which I already saw the episode from Friday. That's William Harris breaking down the three players that actually withdrew from the NBA draft. And... Punt Intended Fantasy NBA Dynasty Podcast. That one blowing up here. Rhett and Travis doing a wonderful job. Their dynasty rankings are the episode from this most recent week. The brand new or uh, refurbished Hoopball Heat Podcast. We're having, I'm having a good old time over here. Pod division just exploding at Hoopball this offseason. So hit me up at Dan Bespris, D-A-N-B-E-S-B-R-I-S, if you'd like to be a part of our blossoming podcast division easy enough or email team hoopball at hoop-ball.com i want to talk about the finals first it's fresher in my mind reminds me of an old mitch hedberg joke but on thursday evening the suns reigned in 23 pointers and beat the milwaukee bucks 118 108 covering the posted total of five when we talked about the show yesterday or when we talked about the game yesterday and clearing the posted total the line they cleared the line i should say the total was 220 and a half moved up to 221 ended at 226 the actual final number 226 going over the mark uh 
the line for Sunday's game, because they're off tonight and Saturday, a couple days off between ball games here, which I reckon is only a good thing for Giannis, who, by the way, looked pretty damn healthy yesterday. That surprised me, as good as he looked, but we'll break that down in a minute. The line on Sunday is Milwaukee by four, total of 222. The line moved a long way. That's effectively a nine-point shift off of Game 2's opening number of Phoenix by five. And I get it. Playoff home court advantage is a really big deal. But generally, it's not four and a half points in each direction. That's pretty high. I'm inclined to believe that at least some of this line shift has come from odds makers seeing how good Giannis looked in game two. And he looked great. Giannis had 42 points on 22 shots. He was brilliant. He changed up his offensive attack so that he wasn't just Euro-stepping towards the rim every single time. When he had a bigger man on it, he could Euro-step around him. When he had a smaller man, it was sort of one power dribble and then like an eight-foot hook shot. And he made a lot of those. That's point-blank stuff for him. And no one's stopping him that way. And yet, Milwaukee only put up 108 points in a game that Giannis again had 42 on 22 of their shots. Giannis shot 68% from the field. The rest of the team really couldn't bother themselves to clear the 40% threshold, but for Pat Connaughton, who had 14 points on 10 shots, and then P.J. Tucker, who had 7 points on 5 shots. Everybody else was a pillar of inefficiency in that ballgame for Milwaukee. Is it something special that Phoenix was doing? Not really. Not really. Phoenix plays pretty good defense, but for the most part, guys were just missing looks. It was just missed shots. The Milwaukee side, uh, Bucks shot 45% as a team. They're never going to shoot the free throw well because Chris Middleton is sort of their only truly good foul shooter on that Milwaukee side. They're, and Giannis takes most of it. He took 18 of their 23 free throws in this ballgame, and he missed quite a few, almost half. But the turnover situation was better for Milwaukee. The thing that didn't really get cleaned up is that they didn't slow down the Suns. Phoenix scored 118 again in each of the first two ball games. The difference in game two is that Milwaukee scored an extra three points, mostly because they turned the ball over a few times less. That's like really the one notable difference in these two ball games. On the Phoenix side, putting up 118 on 88 shots again with not that many free throws, by the way. Uh, another note to, I guess, how consistent the Suns are but the fact that they shot the ball so well in game two just shot the lights out. 49% from the field and 23 pointers. A lot of their shots were coming from downtown, and a lot of those were going in. Which is why uh, I made an appearance with my friends over on BetQL this morning, that uh, awesome betting network, and... The point I wanted to make on that appearance was that this series actually isn't as overwhelming as it looks so far. That is to say, yes, Phoenix has won each of the first two games by double digits, but it's very easy to see a path to Milwaukee keeping every one of these ball games tight. 
The one thing I don't see from watching these finals games is a path for Milwaukee to win a ball game going away. And that's, I guess, to be expected. It's the finals, and the Suns have shown themselves to be incredibly resilient. And even on a bad game, Chris Paul still goes 10 for 20 from the field now that he's healthy again. Those only those slow games for CP3, the only ones we saw were when he was coming back from quarantine and he didn't really have his wind or his legs or whatever you want to talk about. So here's what I'm talking about. Here's what I'm getting into on this series. We talked about anomalous performances from game one. The Suns were uh, an anomalous performance at the free throw line in the first ball game. That was something that probably wouldn't be replicated. And sure enough, in game two, they didn't shoot nearly as many free throws and they made them at a slightly lower clip. Still good, but slightly lower. But they counterbalanced that with an anomalous performance from the three-point line. Now, an anomaly here, we need to be clear, doesn't mean that it never happens. It just means it's more the outlier. It's the exception and not the norm. The Suns played 72 regular season games. They had 23 pointers in, I believe, four of those 72, which is not zero and not one. It didn't happen zero or one time. It happened a couple of times, but it's a handful over five months. Devin Booker hit seven three-pointers in this game, which, by the way, would have been the most he'd hit all season if he didn't hit eight against the Lakers like four weeks ago. Anomalous performances. That's not his game. He's not a big three-point shooter. The Suns have turned Phoenix, to a certain degree, into a three-point shooting team, and it worked for the Suns yesterday. They had enough open looks, and they just... They hit some big shots. That was really the thing. Big shots. Big moments. Phoenix was knocking those shots down. But there were some stretches. Uh, Bucks were down 13 early in the fourth quarter. They went on a 7-0 run. Suns called timeout. Came out of the timeout. Missed a shot. Offensive rebound. Missed a shot. Offensive rebound. Buried a three-pointer. Then hit a two the next time down on a last-second Jay Crowder shot. And suddenly it was back up to a 12-point game again. Er, 11-point game again guess that doesn't really matter that much 12 or 11 but these were those moments you're talking about if the bucks get a defensive rebound there if the bucks use their godforsaken challenge why, why are coaches so reticent to use their challenge there was a play when i think milwaukee was down nine or eight and campaign was trying to uh, run a fast break and he dished a pass and then barreled straight into brooke lopez and uh, lopez got called for a, a blocking foul i mean like it was it was clear as day that Payne was setting a moving pick. Milwaukee chose not to challenge. Brooke Lopez picked up another foul, a shooting foul, on the very next possession. Cam Johnson hit two free throws, and it was back into a double-digit ballgame again. Like, that could have been a four-point swing. What if Milwaukee gets the overturned call, hits a bucket, and suddenly it's like a two-possession game? Not that, like, I, you guys know my beef with Coach uh, Coach Bud and his reluctance to make the adjustments necessary. This wasn't that. This was a heat of the moment. Like, what are we saving this thing for? Was that at the end of the third quarter, beginning of the fourth? I think that was around when that happened. Maybe it was a little bit later. How much more time? You know, this is like in baseball. If something critical happens in the seventh inning and a manager's like, well, I'd like to save my challenge for the ninth. On the what? 5% chance something happens in the ninth inning that might be worth challenging? Odds are, if you can save a possession or points or a foul on your big man or whatever it happens to be, you should probably do it if it's in the third, fourth quarter. 
First quarter, fine. Let something like that go. I don't care that much about talking about what the coaches did right and wrong. I want to talk about betting percentages again. Percentages would tell us the Suns are probably not going to hit 23 pointers in another ball game immediately. Maybe it'll happen again in the playoffs. I don't know. Maybe they do it again later in the finals here. That's the only opportunity left in these playoffs. But odds of it happening two games in a row while shooting 49% and just hitting everything. Mikel Bridges, 27 points. Like, look at the breakdown on this. Booker, seven threes. Bridges, Crowder, CP3 all had three apiece. Meanwhile, Chris Middleton could not throw a stone in the ocean. Drew Holiday could not throw a stone in the ocean. I actually, personally, I like what Drew Holiday's doing defensively. I think he actually did a decent job on Booker and CP3 when he was out there. He forced those two guys into nine combined turnovers, not by himself, but he was in the middle of a bunch of them, even if he didn't get credited for every steal. The way he plays defense impacts a ballgame even when he stinks on offense. Chris Middleton was the offensive problem in yesterday's ballgame. And then defensively, I don't see the Bucks changing it up very much. Milwaukee does, to a certain degree, rely on the length of a playoff series working in their favor. The longer they can go, the heavier the legs get. They want their opposition taking jumpers far, far away, even if they're a little bit open, as opposed to getting stuff right in front of the rim. It's why what DeAndre Ayton was able to do in Game 1 was actually such a huge surprise, because that's the thing they usually try to take away, is the easy shot near the bucket. And Ayton, not surprisingly, was much more normal offensively and defensively, at least on the rebounding perspective in Game 2. He was actually pretty good defensively overall. Ayton did his job. He clogged the paint. But I really liked what Giannis was doing and hopefully he sticks with it. It was, a, it was a subtle change to not try to get all the way to the rim every single time, but also not taking 16, 17-footers, not taking three-pointers. It's the in-between to the in-between. Meaning, it's not a mid-range game. It's close proximity, but it's not a layup. Baby jumpers, five, six, seven, eight, nine feet away, inside the free-throw line, painted area, hook shots, things of that nature. That's easy money. That's easy money because he's so fast and so long. There's literally no one on earth that can deal with him doing that. That's a great playoff attack mode for Giannis. I actually like Milwaukee to win game three, but the four-point number is big to me. Like I, I know that desperation is baked in there, and so that that kills me. I think Phoenix scores... At a lower clip in Game 3, I think the other non-Giannis guys actually probably play better in Game 3. And I still think that oddsmakers have these totals relatively tight to the number. Bucks had about 113, 111-ish possessions in Game 2. Something of that nature was, yeah, like around 112. They underachieved because they shot the ball meh and uh, couldn't make their free throws. Phoenix, on the other hand... Uh, had only about 107 possessions, and they way overachieved, thanks to all the three-pointers, the good shooting, uh, the low free-throw count, or they might have even gone a bit higher. Roll that all together, Milwaukee with a slight rebounding advantage, 112, 107, 219. I mean, we're still talking about the same general pace of play. The total only got adjusted up by a point, which doesn't create much of a wiggle area on the under, ever so slightly to the under in a close ball game. 
I was wrong about yesterday's game being decided in the final minute. I really thought it was going to be closer, but I didn't see Phoenix hitting that many shots. Let's talk about the Utah Jazz, or as the uh, old Jimmy Kimmel bit was, Carl uh, Malone bit, he called them the Utah Jazz. Uh, the Utah Jazz had a weird season. <laughs> they were uh, brilliant during the regular season and pretty bad, honestly, in the playoffs. Pretty bad. They have their key pieces signed for the better part of a decade, Rudy Gobert, Donovan Mitchell, each of those guys, if you include player options, are signed through the 2025-2026 season. That's a long time. Boyan Bogdanovich has two more years on his deal. Jordan Clarkson has two more years and a player option on his. Joe Ingles is uh, about to be an expiring contract. Derek Favors, one more in a player option. Royce O'Neal, three more years on his deal. The only big contract coming off the books is Mike Conley. Now, it also happens to be that Conley's contract from this season was their biggest. Conversely, Donovan Mitchell's rookie deal just ended, so his salary just went up by $25 million a year. Everybody else gets some sort of raise. Rudy Gobert gets a raise. Boyan, his number goes up a little bit. Joe Ingles, etc. What all that rolls together is kind of canceling out whatever benefit Mike Conley coming off the books is for Utah. They can re-sign Conley and go farther over the cap if they want to. Like, there's almost no chance that Conley's making $34.5 million this coming season. But he probably is going to seek something, I'm guessing, more than what Utah could offer. And if you're Utah, you liked what you got out of Conley, but you also, I think, were pretty disappointed in his ability to stay on the floor. That's something you need. Especially if, I mean, if you're going to miss regular season games, it's sort of forgivable. But if you're going to miss playoff games too... That's no good. He played 51 out of 72 regular season games on a team that, for the most part, oddly, aside from Donovan Mitchell, was pretty damn healthy this year. Donovan Mitchell missed 19 games. That was the big one. Conley was on and off the the basketball injured list with his different nagging injuries. But Rudy Gobert played them all, basically. Clarkson, Ingles, Royce O'Neal, Boyan Bogdanovich. Those guys basically played every game this year. So Utah was not particularly beset by injuries other than Donovan Mitchell. And when he was out, you saw bigger performances from guys like Conley, like Ingles, like Clarkson, that perhaps wouldn't have been so extreme had Mitchell played, uh, I don't know, 15, 13, 14, 15 additional ballgames. That said, Let's break down their fantasy stuff. The, the best fantasy player on Utah this year, and it was a runaway, was Rudy Gobert. Maligned though he may be at times, Rudy Gobert was the best fantasy player on that roster. He was number 21 on a per-game basis. He played in 71 out of 72 games, which makes him a first-round pick by totals. And there's almost no reason to believe that his numbers fluctuate at all. Utah's not magically about to become a five-out offensive team. They're built defensively around having Gobert's incredible rim protection behind them. 
he his impact is diminished in the postseason when you can sort of speed run him off the floor. But he's still the defensive player of the year. And even if you disagree with that assessment, he's still at the very least inside the top five for impacting the most stuff defensively during the regular season, at least. Forget what you remember about their playoff run. 14 points, 13 and a half rebounds, almost three blocks a game. That was the big thing for Rudy. We talked about that during our uh, Dan Vespers old man squad in review portion of this offseason. His blocks were back up, and his value went back up. It was pretty damn straightforward. If you block shots, you're golden. He's also shown himself to be, to be quite durable. Again, last three seasons, he's missed one game, four games, and one game. That's pretty damn good. Six games over, over three years. After he had that weird stretch where he was alternating between hyper-durable seasons and ones where like he'd blow his knee out for two months. Well, now he's staying on the floor. He's shooting in the mid to high 60% from the field. He's low 60s at the free throw line. He's going to be at 10 rebounds per game uh, or more every year. He's averaging 11.3 over his career. This season, he was at 13 and a half. Last year, he was at 13 and a half. And again, that big key was that as a career marker, he's at 2.2 blocks per game. He's at 2.7 this season. Even if that 2.7 comes back down to 2.3, which is about where he's at in 30 to 31 minutes per game career-wise, he's still durable enough to be a second-round guy. Crap, he's almost durable enough to stay inside the first round. Like, there's a weird, twisted universe where Rudy Gobert just magically shoots like 65% at the free throw line instead of 62, and that would actually bump up against whatever potential losses you might see in the shot blocking department. He's been able to mitigate the losses on the offensive side with better rebounding and better shot blocking and terrific field goal percent, 68% this year, 69 last season. I see no reason why Rudy Gobert shouldn't be right back on the Dan Bespris old man squad. Because... As strong as he was this year, he got drafted outside the top 30 this season. I would argue largely because the previous year, he was number 33 on a per-game basis. But even if you go back to COVID-shortened last season, if you factored in the durability element, he jumps another round and a half again. Now, it's not entirely fair because his team actually went to the bubble and not everybody did. So pull those teams and games out. He played six, I believe, of their eight games in the bubble. And uh, Rudy Gobert ends up at number 14 by totals last year. This is why, by the way, I think he remains a value going into next season. He was number 14 by totals last year, and he got drafted outside the top 30. He's number seven by totals this most recent season. He probably goes, what do we think, as high as, like, mid-20s? You think someone takes Rudy in the second round? I'd be very surprised. He's a third-round guy because that's just what people see in him. No one cares that he's perfected the art of staying on the basketball court these days. Nobody cares. It's pretty weird. Honestly, it's pretty damn weird. 
Second name on the list for the uh, Jazz this season was Donovan Mitchell. He was number 49 in 53 games played. And I'd like to cut him a little bit of slack because, who, by the way, he actually went uh, ahead of Gobert in a lot of drafts. The, um, The durability thing was supposed to work in his favor. Donovan, his career, played 79 out of 82 games his rookie year, 77 out of 82 his second season in the league last year, 69 out of 72. So he's generally missing about three games or so uh, per season. And then all of a sudden this season he missed 19. There really wasn't a, a, a very clear way to see that one coming. Otherwise... Uh, Steph was pretty much what you'd expect out of him. Exactly one steal per game, which is kind of where he's been, like, since his offensive role went kaboom, and he couldn't, and they and Utah made sure that defensively they weren't gambling very much. Assists were uh, at an all-time high for him. Rebounds are all where they always were. He, uh, like, this was exactly, you got what you drafted. Shot 44%. That's the same as his career mark. 85% foul shooting was actually better than his career mark. So someone might look at this Donovan Mitchell top 50 finish and say, what happened? What happened is exactly what always happens. If you're drafting Donovan Mitchell, you are drafting him understanding that the only way he hits his ADP is if he plays 90% of his games. It's the only way. There's nowhere else for him to go other than dramatically boosting his field goal percent, and it's been the same every damn year of his career, with the exception of the bubble postseason, where he was particularly good from the field in seven ball games. But that's a limited sample size. If you look at full seasons, 44, 43, 45, 44. What do you think you're getting next year? 45 at best? And his number of three-pointers isn't going down, friends. It's been going up. He'll be overdrafted. I can I bet my life on it for next year. Mike Conley was the third-ranked Utah Jazz player this season at number 57, but he missed 21 ball games, and he probably profiles as a uh, roto-friendly type. I don't know where he's going to end up, but I you could see him getting 12 and a half, 13 shots, mostly any place he does wind up. Someone's going to sign him to be a starting point guard, even as he approaches the later stages of his career, and with the understanding that he's not going to play all 82 ball games this coming season. So again, this, he, he falls into that category. We talked about it a little bit with uh, like a Shea Gilgis-Alexander or a Kemba Walker on yesterday's show. These guys we knew weren't going to play. They're not going to play the whole season this coming year, especially not Kemba, but maybe you get a guy who outperforms on a per-game basis, and you just take what you can get. With Kemba, he probably gets shut down, and then that frees up that roster spot. With Conley, it's just going to be like, oh, he's going to take a game off every week, basically, the whole season long. Because when he was out there this year, he was actually pretty good. 16 points, 3.5 boards, 6 assists, low turnovers, high steals, good 3-pointers, good foul shooting. He was a very cheap equivalent to Donovan Mitchell with less scoring. The difference between those two guys was basically 10 points per game, and then Conley was actually better at collecting steals during the ball game. And then the rest of the news here on the Jazz is actually we can kind of clump together into one 
big, slightly suboptimal group. Jordan Clarkson, 107. Played in 68 ball games, so he was inside the top 100 by totals. Actually, was a very was a quality guy to have in head-to-head leagues, and a little bit less so in roto. Got off to a super hot start, and then the shooting leveled off, and he finished at 42 and a half percent, which is kind of where we always expected he would end up. He'll have his gunner role on this team. It's not going anywhere, and with Mike Conley. If he ends up somewhere else, I don't know that that necessarily dramatically expands what Clarkson was doing because dude was already taking 16 shots a game in 27 minutes off the bench. He was not bashful. I mean, the under understatement of the year. He doesn't get many steals. He doesn't pass. You get what you get. Jordan Clarkson's a top 100 range type of guy. And he's probably not fluctuating off of that. Makes a lot of sense as a guy to draft near 100 in head-to-head leagues, assuming he plays most of the season and you can just sort of plug him in there and get what you get. I'm less inclined to take him near 100 in Roto because there's no real upside. Unless you believe in your heart of hearts that Jordan Clarkson's field goal percent is going to change. But he's been in the league long enough now where I think we know it's probably not gonna. And if you're like, Dan... 44% career guy. He was at 42.5 this year. I'd say, yeah, he also took nine three-pointers a game this year and shot 35% from out that way. That's why his field goal percent is lower. It's not that the other stuff has changed all that much. It's that last year he took six three-pointers a game out of 13 shots, and this year it was nine out of 16 shots. He added three shots a game, and they were all three-pointers. The math slaps you right in the mug. Jordan Clarkson, go ahead and replicate what you got. I would consider targeting you in head-to-head. The guy that I like a little bit more for next year is Joe Ingles, and that's only if Mike Conley is not there, because when Conley's not on the floor or when Donovan Mitchell wasn't on the floor, that was when Ingles was able to thrive a little bit more as a distributor. Because as the third distributor on this team behind Conley and behind Mitchell there just really isn't enough there for him he had an historically strong shooting year which perhaps Joe doesn't replicate but he's also durable so makes sense as a head-to-head late grab kind of guy and there's a little bit of upside there on the chance he gets more run with the starters on the chance the assist can creep back from 4.8 into the fives and on the chance that the other stuff holds relatively steady, if he picks up just a little bit of extra stuff, should Conley go somewhere else, that bumps him into the useful even in Roto departments. And then the other guys on this Jazz team, Royce O'Neal and Boyan Bogdanovich, I think the only two that are actually worth mentioning, Royce O'Neal is a zero upside, deep league kind of guy who excels because of his low turnovers and rebounding Out of a uh, generally shooting guard eligible player in a lot of spots, no upside there at all. No reason to do it. And then Boyan Bogdanovich, there actually is a little bit of upside. He shot the ball terribly this year. He might be better next season. If he falls outside the top 100, I would consider taking a flyer on him in either format and just see what happens. Because there were stretches this year where he was outside the top 250, and then there were stretches where he was like a top 60 guy for a couple of weeks when the shots were dropping and he was scoring 24, 25 points a night. He's another guy that would benefit from added usage. If Conley's 13 shots disappear 
and have to be redistributed to the rest of these dudes. To recap, the Utah Jazz. Rudy Gobert will probably be underdrafted again. Donovan Mitchell will almost definitely be overdrafted again. Mike Conley is someone I would only look at in Roto, and only if he lands on the proper team, because he's not going to be healthy. Jordan Clarkson is someone I would basically only look at in head-to-head, because of the durability is a good thing, but the upside is minimal. Joe Ingles is someone I would consider in all formats, if Conley goes elsewhere. And Boyan Bogdanovich is someone I would consider in all formats, mostly if Conley goes elsewhere. But you could maybe even talk me into it, even if Mike sticks around. Because Boyan got his 13 shots a game. You just saw a a significant drop-off. And I don't know, like maybe this is just the way things are going to be for him in Utah. But think back. Look, this is a 46% career shooter who struggled with a wrist injury in Utah last year and then struggled getting in shape this year. But he had just shot 50% and 47.5% in Indiana the two previous seasons. His number of three-pointers also increased relative to his total number of shots, so that is 100% a possibility of things to blame again. And maybe this 18-point guy from this year that does almost nothing else and the percentages, sorry, 17-point guy where the percentages uh, are good in free throw and not great at all in field goal. Maybe that's just who he is now. But if you're at, like, pick 120 and he's still on the board, it's worth a shot that maybe the field goal percent ticks back up by 2-3% because that actually does push him into fantasy relevance. That's what it would take to not be, well, frankly, bad in field goal percent. Make yourself somewhat useful there, and then you're good in scoring threes, free throw percent, and turnovers, and that'll get you kind of over the bar, barely. Finals Game 3, Sunday in Milwaukee. Enjoy it, everybody. We will be back with you on Monday to break down the results of that Finals game and finish up the Northwest Division with the Denver Nuggets. I am Dan Vespers for Fantasy NBA Today. A hoopball presentation. Enjoy your weekend. We'll talk to you Monday. This has been a Hoop Bowl presentation.